What's going on, everyone? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Eugene Rem. He's the co-founder of Catch Hospitality Group, which owns and operates several high-end restaurants based in New York, L.A., Las Vegas, and Playa del Carmen. In 2016, Eugene co-founded Rumble Boxing, which has quickly become one of the fastest-growing fitness concepts in America with 13 locations nationwide. During our conversation, we talk about everything from Eugene's upbringing and moving to New York at age two from the former Soviet Union, his college days and early career, and the valuable lessons he's picked up along the way, his thoughts on management versus leadership, the founding stories of Catch and Rumble, what advice he would give his 18-year-old self if he was just getting his career started, and much more. Here we go. Yeah, you know, I was I was born in the former Soviet Union in 1978. Uh, we came to America, my mother, my father, myself. I'm an only child. We came here when I was two and a half, maybe, to Rockaway, Queens. And uh, with my grandmother and my grandfather, we had to live in Italy, I think, for eight weeks between between leaving Russia and then getting to the States. And from there, we moved around a bunch. I, I went to Kings Highway, and then we moved to Phoenix, New Jersey, and then New Milford, New Jersey. And then when I was 14, we moved to Oradell, New Jersey, which is where my parents still live until, you know, right right now. But um, so a lot of kind of, you know, when we came here, like, you know, the typical immigrant story came with nothing father and mother really uh, hustled and struggled in the early days. And we were helped by um, a Jewish, um, a private Jewish uh, company that helped bring in Russian Jewish immigrants from the USSR. So we got some funding to help get us off our feet with, with, with an apartment for a couple of months and just some, some basic food and, and supplies. And um, so, yeah, I grew up pretty, um, pretty normal immigrant childhood, right? You kind of like, as you, as your parents make a little bit of money, they, they invest in the one thing that they thought was the most important, which was a, a slightly better neighborhood, a slightly better home, a slightly better environment. And most importantly for my parents was just a, a slightly better school and a slightly better town. So, um, yeah. And, and both Poch and I are Armenian. Our parents are immigrants as well um, from different areas of the world. And so we're super familiar with kind of the immigrant kind of upbringing and childhood. But kind of for you specifically, like, did you have any pressure as a kid to sort of, you know, um, do something big with your life and perhaps be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that? Or was it, yeah. was it pretty, you know, chill in terms of, you know, go, go and figure it out for yourself? It wasn't chill because chill would be like, ah, oh, you're going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. I think it was just there wasn't. So doctor lawyer was out of the question because my grades were never going to be at doctor lawyer level. So, you know, we, we pretty much knew that by like seven or eight, that there was no uh, really traditional educational job, which required med school or grad school or something along those lines. So I think it was a lot of um, teacher, salesman, insurance, something, right? Because that's all we really knew. And you got to remember when we were growing up, uh, I'm 42 years old. So when we were growing up, there was none of this. So the idea that someone will tell you a story that you can, I'm making it up, style somebody and get paid as a living to dress other people into cool fashion, that would have been like telling me humans can fly. 
when I was a kid growing up. So I, I, grades were incredibly important to my parents because they were incredibly important in the Soviet Union. It was the only way to justify uh, success in those days. So right when when you were 13 in the Soviet Union, you kind of went left or right. If you if you weren't good at school, they they taught you how to do something with your hands. If you were good at school. They moved you forward into science and math and then knew that you were going to add some value to the country then. So my parents put a ton of, um, they put a ton of like emphasis on schoolwork because they just simply believe that school, good schoolwork equal good grades, equal good job, equal good life, meaning they would not have to support me forever and I would be okay. And that was kind of the, the process. Unfortunately, um, you know, school was not something that I excelled in, right? I, I did not have great grades. I was not academically um, inclined. I was not interested in doing my work. I did the bare minimum to not get in trouble by my parents. And the things that I did enjoy, socializing and sports and music, um, no one ever thought that could be made a living off. So that was never emphasized. So that was that was kind of the challenge there growing up, and it's and it's not their fault. As as immigrants, they didn't know any better. So I certainly I'm I'm past that stage where I I have any blame towards them. But but you know, school was not my thing. Period. Eugene, were you a confident kid? Um, you know, the winners always write the history books, so you can always say what you think you were when you were a little kid. I'd have to think back on that. I don't think so, right? Because if I had to think back on it, I was a happy kid. It was my general disposition to be happy, but confidence would mean that you'd have to check some boxes of success, right? So at the time, the only success at home that really mattered were grades. So if you weren't confident in your grades, um, it was hard to be successful in my house. And then outside of the house, I guess there would be sports where if you were just a supreme athlete or something super talented in in sports you can get your confidence there and i by no means was the best at anything right i was i was i played every single sport i played soccer in the fall i played basketball in the winter i played baseball in the summer uh in the spring and summer but i was never the best so no i probably i think it's safe to say i i wasn't the most confident person because I'm also a, pr- a practical person. So if you're not if you're not winning very well at anything, that's not how you can gain some confidence. I think confidence comes with a few wins, and uh, my wins were fewer and further apart as far as being awesome or excellent at anything. It, it kind of goes to that like ignorance is bliss thing, right? Like sometimes you just don't know any better. So so like I feel like there are a lot of confident people that just don't know any better. Like they're not trying to maximize anything. It's just you know they're sort of happy with their environment and where they're at and. Um, it just kind of depends on how you look at life and, and what you want out of your life, I guess. Right. Um, well, but in a way like, so yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. So I, I, I know you said like you weren't too into school, but I think I saw you ended up going to college. You went to Hofstra, um, yeah. university. How was that experience for you? What did you study? Um, did you enjoy college? <laughs> All right. Well, so that I have a very, you know, that's, I, 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 I grew up. And so I definitely remember college. That was probably years that I certainly remember. So, for example, um, I went to Hofstra University, which I call the Harvard of Hustle, right? So we, we, we kind of, a bunch of young guys that uh, that I became friends with, we were all never great at school. So 
I can say this. In high school, there was one class that I remember, and that was working in the TV studio. So I helped create the TV programs. I got to edit a lot of the fun stuff. Um, and I was able to, oh, I'm going to say that again. Um, in high school, I was only, I only remember one class and that was the TV class. It was something that I excelled at. It was something that I was good at. I got to edit. I got to technical direct. I got to do camera work. I think I remember I got $500 to, to do the high school prom video. And I was really enjoying the, the, the money that I made from it and, and doing it. It was fun. And Dude, I, we, I did the high school prom video too, but I didn't get paid. <laughs> yes, yes. I think there was some money in like the prom fund. And I, de I definitely got paid because I remember it. And I definitely did it last minute because I didn't you know, plan ahead, but I loved it, right? So I could honestly tell you that the only thing I remember in high school is that class. I cannot tell you a single thing. I'm not proud of this, by the way. And I, I wouldn't, I don't think it's the best uh, version of myself, but I cannot tell you a single thing or a single class that I remember in college. I do not believe that I learned a single thing in a classroom that I, that I can take with me outside of college. However, as a human being, I had the education of a lifetime. And what that means to me is having a group of five or six friends that I'm still incredibly close with today that we all met freshman year. It means growing up and being able to live outside of my parents' house and having some freedom to meet different people, right? I, I don't even think I particularly knew a single person who had divorced parents when I was uh, in high school, whether it was sheltered for me or I just didn't know about it. But when you go to college and you start to learn about people's uh, lives and how different they were from your own. So I, I think college for me, particularly and for a lot of people, um, is an opportunity to grow up socially and to really buffer the years. Because if you went straight into the workforce at 18, I think I would be a complete moron and I'd have three bad resume. <laughs> three bad things on my resume about not doing well. So but do you think uh, it's still worth it? Like at this point with how expensive it is and what you get out of it? Um, cause I, you know, I, obviously I have my thoughts about college and everyone has their thoughts about it, but for you, what do you like the, the price of college has just gone astronomically higher and higher every year. Like I think I went to USC, mm. Posh went to USC every year. The tuition goes up by like two grand, if not more which is yeah. a little ridiculous to me because everything else just stays the same. Like the median salary stays the same and your yeah. opportunities sort of stay the same in my opinion. So I don't know. Uh, what do you think? I, I think that's an, that's an awesome question. And I want to, I want to, I want to talk through it because I don't think it's a simple answer. And I can say that the education in the classroom of college was completely and utterly useless to me. However, the growth as a person socially and business wise and learning things has would be priceless. So if the price was four times as much today, looking back on it, I would have paid for it in spade. There are people who should go to college. There are people who shouldn't go to college. The education system should not be about simply just putting your name on a piece of paper and that piece of paper getting you a job. If that's why you're going to college, I would highly recommend going into some sort of craft outside of after school. However, I think it's really personal. And I think it's really individual. It's how you grew up. It's the size of the household you grew up. It's what opportunities are available to you. So if you're from somewhere in the Midwest and you get the opportunity to go to a, a, a seventh tier school in Manhattan, 
but you get to be in Manhattan, then I don't know what you could put on that. And I think, I think if you are going to be successful in life, and let's just call it $200,000 for an education, if you are going to be a sex, successful adult in business on your deathbed, if you said, I wish I had $200,000 more, or I wish I didn't, I wish I, I, I didn't have college, I think, I think that most people would take college because I think the value there w- would be awesome. And I also think this, the struggle that some of the people have today with their student loans and, and the things like that, that's, that's just another layer of fuel to get them over a hurdle of debt. And that's part of business. So I think, I think it's another opportunity. So I think it's really case on the person. And I've often been very negative on college because I didn't learn anything in the classroom. But I really think just like most things in life, they're really personal to the person. But no, not everyone should go to college and parents and children together should be thoughtful about what what to do with that money and that time. Eugene, during your college years, did you start forming ideas of things that you were interested in pursuing career wise? Or, you know, you were just going through those years as if, you know, I'm just trying to get out of here and we'll figure it out after. I was not trying to get out of there. I was trying to stay as long as humanly possible. I loved college and everything outside of the classroom. I loved the social aspect. So I, I, I had my first job and in college, and that was working in a restaurant, and that was the first restaurant I ever worked at. And I, and I, and I will say this. I think every single person should work in a restaurant as a server, as a busser, as a runner, because if you really want to understand what other people are like, feed them, serve them. Serve them when they're cranky, serve them when they're on a first date, serve them when they're on a business meal. And if you've never been on a first date and if you've never been on a business meal and you've never been with uptight in-laws, you should serve them because it really gives you an opportunity to do that. But I knew I was making $100 a shift and it was hard work, six hours, seven hours. The guy made me shave every single day. I I hated it, right? Um, That's an absolute deal killer. Killer, killer. And I then got a job and I, I, my best friend was working at the cool bar in town and he was the bartender and his brother knew the owner of that bar. And that bar would be like, I don't know, whatever studio 54 is and wherever anyone is from, that was the studio 54 of where, where we went to college. And he got me a position as a bar back. And that's when I started to make real money. And that was interesting to me. So I enjoyed that aspect of it. But here's the problem. Again, there was nothing to tell you that you can go open a bar. The idea of that was really wild. There was nothing that can tell you that you can go into management of multiple bars or you could get paid to host people at a nightclub or this or that. Like that wasn't in my um, in my view. So when I did graduate, I knew one guy in my fraternity, and that one guy worked at AE at the History Channel. And that job at AE in the History Channel was selling ad sales space. So selling commercials. And me and my roommate both moved to New York City on August 14th, 2000. I had one friend from high school who had a one bedroom apartment on 16th Street. So we didn't need to get our parents' signatures or drop four months of security. We were able to just kind of get in. I took the bedroom, he took the living room, and together we went to work 
at A&E in the History Channel in the ad sales department. Eugene, for that first restaurant job, uh, I'm curious, so what's like a great lesson you learned that's gone with you throughout your hospitality and just business career in general? Just one thing, because I'm sure a lot of people that are listening have worked retail or have worked in a restaurant or some sort of a service job. And, yeah. you know, I think it's always helpful when somebody who has reached a level of success like yourself can look back and say, you know, that one lesson, that one challenge or that one pain point that I had to deal with when I was 19, 20 years old came back and has helped me throughout my entire career. Right. Okay. So it's not a particular moment, but it's a particular concept. And the concept is teaching the why. So when I went to work at the restaurant, we pooled. So as we pulled, I didn't understand why we need to clear plates between each course. I didn't understand why we needed to course a specific way, appetizer, entree, dessert. I didn't understand why you needed to get the glass of wine out early. I was just told to serve. And because I hadn't eaten at restaurants of that caliber before that, because that's not how I grew up. I grew up eating at my parents' house. And my 18th birthday at TGI Fridays. But beyond that, we were home or at the pizza spot, right? Like at best or the deli, right? So that manager never got me to buy in to why it was important to serve that guest. He never taught me that that guest's experience was important. More importantly than the guest experience, he never taught me that other servers' livelihood depended on this job. And if I gave them a poor experience, our pool tip collectively would go down and that person would make less money. So I was not great at the job, but I never got taught the why of the job. And quite honestly, that was even moved when my first job out of college because at Amy and the History Channel, I didn't really even understand when I was switching out this Johnson & Johnson product, I don't know, call it like this spray for this cleaner for the commercial. I didn't even understand why I was doing it. I didn't understand that, hey, they have a strategy and now they want to shift that strategy to focus on selling this product because this product works better with this TV show. So learning the why was the biggest lesson I learned. And I hope to execute that. And when we share that is getting people motivated, not just to do the work because I said so, because that right. only goes so far. It, it reminds really me of this. I mean, it reminds me of something I just recently heard. I was listening to another podcast and someone was talking about the distinction between a leader and a manager. And oftentimes people, um, you know, it was, they were talking about the politicians of today and how a lot of them are managers and not necessarily leaders. And really one of the biggest differences is a manager sort of just tells people what to do. They just delegate. They say, this is what, this is your job and this is, this is what you do, but they don't really explain the underlying reason to your point of why we, you do the things you do. Because at that point, when someone is bought in and understands and shares the same vision, then it's like they could just motivate themselves and really like it's a matter of do you want to do this or not and you you sort of figure out um you know what to do uh, you know even though like you, these are your responsibilities but you can you don't have to be managed as much um and so that's a great lesson to learn and i think it's something that works both ways like you as a someone who's reporting to somebody you should seek that out but at the same time i think effective leaders sh should sh you know be more uh you know uh, vocal about sharing those things like the, the overall vision and why we do what we do as opposed to, all right, you know, it's your first day. This is what you're supposed to do. Just stick to that and you'll be fine. You know what I mean? So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting statement. So leaders 
became leaders because they were independent thinkers and were incredibly aggressive. The problem is that leaders think everybody else is going to be a leader. And that's where the challenge comes. So as an operator or as a business person, the first step is to be the best version of yourself. The best operator, you, you get there early, you, you work really hard, and you do everything above and beyond. And then when you move into the position of doing it for yourself to having to get others to do it, you're incredibly shocked at the idea that people don't want to do it as well as you. Well, the, the, the key to management is being able to pivot from managing yourself to managing a group of people. And that is the unspoken secret in entrepreneurship that is often never spoken about. It's often spoken about of what I did and how great I am and what a great leader I do. But it's very rare that people talk about, hey, I had to change my strategy because if everyone was just like me, then it'd be a lot harder to be me. But getting 100 people to come, come close, that has to be done through storytelling. And that has to get people inspired. So it's a push-pull. Managers push you, push you. When I push you physically, you move two feet, three feet. You move back. If I can pull you as a leader, I bring you closer to me. And then you want to stay with me. So leaders pull people close. Managers push people away. And that's the big difference. I'm so passionate about this because when we opened our first nightclub in 2006, we managed 50 people. Those 50 people included every single bartender, every single server, every single busser, runner, co-check attendant, security guard, bathroom attendant, everyone. You can never get bigger than managing 50 people well. So as you grow, you must learn how to manage 50 general managers. You can't get as granular to the server, but if you can inspire 50 people really well, you can always grow. And that's my point of view on management versus leadership. Well, I think it comes down to, and I agree, the leader knowing the why and the purpose, right? And I think there are certain leaders that are, you know, quote unquote leaders uh, who are actually managers, but even calling them managers is calling them too much. I mean, I guess micromanagers are just, you know, dictators is a better word for them. Uh, but they don't know their purpose or their purpose is either unethical, unreasonable, something that just doesn't make sense. And so right. when you work for a person like that and you're a generally intelligent person, you know, average of in average intelligence, you recognize those things quickly. You know who's genuine and who's not, right? I think that's a big part of being an entrepreneur and being a leader is like, how authentic of a person are you? How much do you believe in me? How much do you believe in this company? How much do you believe in this idea and what we're actually yeah. doing? If I don't fully believe that you believe more than anybody else here combined, I, I can, I'm not going to trust you, right? And it, it's a huge challenge to be an entrepreneur, to be the founder, to be the CEO, because you're not just trying to pursue this idea. Now you're trying to essentially create better leaders of mm -hmm. from yourself, right? But I'm curious, you know, what taught you that early on? Because we haven't gotten into your later ventures yet. But early on, who are some of the leaders perhaps that taught you these things? Or what are the things that you saw 
that right. were able to kind of have this sort of effect on you. So here's the problem. There's a couple of things I want to talk about. One is you learn through failures. And unfortunately, human beings and most people only learn through failure and pain. They never learn without that. So whatever any leader would have shown me, I probably wouldn't have followed it until I went through it myself. So the best way I can explain is through a little bit of storytelling and through my story. So I can share with you in 2013, and I know we're, we're, we're hopping around and I apologize for that. Yeah, I think it, we do that all the time. We do that all the all time. Right. All right, good, good, good. So in 2013, we had 14 places. And by the end of that year, I think we had three. So and when we say of, we, what, what, what is, what is, we is, we is catch hospitality group M group and M group is, and, and we'll go, we'll go back to that is a company I started with one of my closest friends, uh, Mark Birnbaum in 2006. Our first club was 10 June. We were 28 and 29 years old in the heart of the meatpacking district. So we went on a tear from 2006 to 2013. We opened places. We were important. We were in articles everywhere on TV, doing fun things with fun people, being really, re really fabulous, right? But you, you mentioned something, and I want to debate it with you. You said leaders need to know that what their message is in order to get the other people. So I had a vision as we were repositioning Catch Hospitality Group, and we were focused on the Catch brand, and that was on these three pillars: great food, great service, great vibe. Right. I never expressed them in those words, but that's what I was wanting to do. So we were a big nightclub company that served a little bit of food. And we wanted to pivot to being this restaurant organization that had nightlife DNA. So I walked into a pre-shift. And here's where you learn. Here's what they don't teach you in school. And if they taught you in school, I wasn't listening and I had to go through it my own. I thought everybody that worked with us as a server understood what catch was. Now it was a great restaurant that had great food, great service, and great vibe. And I said to them, I go, what does catch mean to you? And everyone had a different answer and none of them were great food, great service, and great vibe. They were things like cool, trendy, celebrity, like, like buzzwords that they didn't even understand while they were there. So who cares if I know? What really you need to do is get your team to buy in. So I, I often go back to the Bible, right? How does everyone in the world know the Ten Commandments basically within some how, how could when people communicate within a company, you can say the same sentence and get five different results? Yet that was something that could be translated throughout the entire world, no matter your level of education, no matter where you were, into a gazillion languages. So why? Simplicity. So I learned the hard way that the, the simpler the message, the better. And then next, to your next point, authenticity. The more authentic that message is, and if people actually trust your words, trust is the key way to communicate. Because if you say anything right now and I don't trust you, the words that come out of your mouth will go in one ear and out the other, and I will be judging them. If I do trust, I will be hanging on to every single word and believe in what you're doing. So learning trust, learning simple communication, and learning to ask employees was that. Now, where did I learn this? I, I have to think back, right? So that's not how I was trained. I was trained in, hey, man, go do this right now, or I'm going to fire you. And I'm going to fire you fast. And then you're not going to have a job. 
And then you're going to move back home with your mother. And then everything that you thought you were going to be a failure about was going to come back in your life. And that's how I was driven. But I have to remember that people are different, dri- driven differently. And right. not everyone has the drive like that. And a lot more people are calmer. And they don't, not everyone, I, I respond well to spice. I respond well to let's fucking go. I, I respond well to that kind of a right. coach talk. But there's a lot of people and more in this generation and more in this decade, I would say than ever that, that don't, and they need sugar. So just right. because I responded well to spice does not mean that is the only way to manage. And, and, and don't Eugene, know if I answered the question, but I just. You did. And, and to clarify one point on the message part, when I said that you have, to, as a leader, you have to know your message, it's not only that you have to know your message, but you have to be able to communicate it properly to those that are on your team, right? Whether that's when you're onboarding them, whether that's constantly, right? In an all hands meeting, you know, the reason we're here is because this, right? You know, we're doing this initiative because this, right? And it's something that, you know, every kind of organization that I've been involved with, I always bring it back to, why are you here? Why are we here? I'm not here to add a line to my resume. I don't give a shit. No one looks at my resume. No one cares about my resume. I've never gotten a job based on my resume. I'm here to learn. I'm here to provide a service to what I signed up for. That's my mission. I don't know anything to you or you unless that's part of the mission, right? So as a leader, and this is, I've just learned this the hard way because of people that I've dealt with who I've had a, or who have given me a negative experience was I didn't know what the mission was, right? I, I didn't sense authentic, authenticity. I didn't gain any trust at all. And in hospitality of all industries, that's like number one because people can go around anywhere. Right, pre-pandemic, okay, go to this bar, you can work at this restaurant. Doesn't matter, everything's booming. But how do you keep people there? How do you keep them motivated? And to that point on authenticity, you know, it's funny. We look at some of the leaders in the past that have been very authentic, like Steve Jobs or uh, you know Travis Kalanick of Uber or folks like folks like them that almost you know just kind of let their personality show a lot and. That's kind of backfired. I mean, I don't know if, if you know if Steve Jobs was to build Apple today, if he would he would have stayed at the helm for as long as he did. Um, and so it's interesting this balance of you know showing pure authenticity, but also being a little political, where it's like you know you you kind of want to show that you're a leveled leader and you're not you know going to blow up at people or or what have you, because in this day and age, it's it's less tolerable, if you will. It's, no. I, I don't. I don't even think it's about this day and age. Even though I think it's important, I think there's a moment in every leader, in every CEO's career, in every founder's career, where they have to pivot from what got them there, and completely change in order to keep them. Because there's a way, and you could you could bootstrap and grind through the first years of a company, and that passion, and that youthfulness, and that vigor to get 10 people to break through a wall for you. But when you get to a thousand employees, when you get to scale, and, and also when you get in this current environment, you almost are guaranteed to hit a brick wall. And right. so what's the point of driving really fast if on the last lap, you're gonna, you're gonna crash into the wall and then all of it's for nothing, right? Because you're still gonna lose the race, yep. the car's gonna explode and you're done. So that pivot, is so hard. And I can understand why it's hard because you're, an, you're a CEO and then you get a bunch of executive coaches and other people be like, well, Eugene, you really, you, you, you can't behave like this anymore and you, you shouldn't speak like this. And you're like, hey man, the only reason I'm sitting in this room with all of you is because I didn't listen to all of you 20 years ago. So, so that what, 
what you would call a confidence, which could be also a naiveness, which can just be a, a, a arrogance, right? Whatever you want to call it, that's what got you here. So there's this really hard moment, and I don't know when it is, but you have to start pivoting, and that's the challenge. And that's why when you, you mentioned people like a Travis from Uber, if Travis wasn't Travis, there'd be no chance that there'd be Uber today. If he wasn't a relentless bulldog, and Uber is my favorite company of all time. It has changed my life for the better in so many ways in my ability to travel in different cities and feel comfortable and feel safe and feel really, really good. But without Travis being that bull, he could never have grown the company to where it was. But that same bull could create problems when you get to a certain scale. So unless that person is willing to change, that's when they should probably tap out, either go do it again or have to pivot into a new style of operator. So that's my view on how you pivot in that role. Isn't that easier said than done? I mean, like, I yeah. guess just to play devil's advocate here, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, you're a great father for 18 years, right? You know, you've been able to discipline them well, you've been able to educate them. And after 18 years, you're just like, all right, I don't even know how to, I, I don't know how, I don't know how to coach the adult version of you, you know, go figure it out, right? I mean, and some parents do that. And I compare that to a parent because that's what a company is like to a lot of entrepreneurs, if not every entrepreneur. It's like you birth that thing, right? You thought about it, you brought it to life, you grew it, and then you're, and someone's like, "Nope, sorry, you're too aggressive of a you know father to this company to lead it, you know, to its IPO because we want you know Wall Street, you know, you have to be kind to Wall Street, you have to be kind on these phone calls, this and that, and all that bullshit, right? So why is that the case? I mean, why why can't you know a founder? Why can't CEOs? continue to be who they are why should they change to uh, by the way there are a lot of examples of people that have been able to do this successfully and we can kind of you know run down the list there's a lot of people but it's 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 just funny this balance of authenticity and like politics and that was just sort of what i was getting at it was like some people are just able to do it because they understand at a certain level they need to not suppress you know their their what they're saying and what how they act but they're just able to do it but like, for example, even a Steve Jobs, like he was, he, he, they fired him and then he came back because, and look what he did, you know, it's like, but yeah. was his management we're about, we're the right about, way? Probably not. We're ta- I mean, look, everyone yeah. loves to talk about Steve Jobs. Everyone loves to talk about Elon Musk. These are the outliers yeah. uh, of the world. And, and it's, aw- it's awesome to talk about these particular individuals. But when you, when you speak of it as a whole, it is yeah. very often, probably 99 out of 100 that the founder, when it gets to a certain scale, needs to relinquish control of his company. And that has often led to the failure of companies when the founder does not know when to do that. Now, I agree, there are always special cases, but this is no longer an opinion, but probably a a, a business fact of what that happens. Again, I stay in the founder shoe. I love being a founder. I love creating businesses, but I've also through practice and education have learned how to pivot without losing that authenticity because I will still speak this way forever. And I will still not speak banker talk just because bankers are in the room. Because also, good news for me, that's not what my business is about. My business is about (laughs) connecting with real people who work real jobs, who are not necessarily um, looking to make a million dollars a year working at Morgan Stanley out of college. It is a different type of person. And that's the other thing. I would fail at that job. Mm -hmm. I would fail at that career. 
And that is why I went into entrepreneurship. It wasn't so much a choice. It was probably the only way that I can be successful. So when I went into A&E and the History Channel, my only corporate job in my entire life, I looked around and I said, I can't make it here. Not the fact that they're not, that I'm better than them, that they're corporate and I'm going to be an entrepreneur. It's just reality is I would fail in that corporate setting. I need to create and they need to manage. And there's teams that play from behind. They play a different way. And there's teams who play with the lead and that's corporate America. That's playing with the lead. That's my point of view. So let's talk about the businesses. You know, you mentioned 2006, you, you, you launched the venture and, um, it's a nightclub, right? Um, at first, how does that whole thing come about? Um, what were you doing just prior to that? And and when did you decide to take the leap? What did that look like? Did you have to go out and raise a bunch of money? Like where did the capital come from? All that good stuff. So the two minute backstory pre 10 June. So 10 June was an iconic club that myself and my business partner, Mark Birnbaum opened in September of 2006, we named it 10 June because both Mark and I are born on the 10th of June. Um, wow. Previously previously to that, um, I had been running a, a club and a set of restaurants in the nightlife aspect for a gentleman named Steve Hansen, who owned a company called Be Our Guest, Bluefin, Ruby Foos, Ocean Grill, Atlantic Grill, Isabella's, Dos Caminos, a successful New York operator and a mentor to me, but also a hard guy to work for in the sense that he made you work and he was not willing to accept if you if you made ten dollars and and you were supposed to make five he would ask you why i didn't make 11 and that was very good for me to learn before that i had worked for the gerber family which is randy gerber who who owns casamigos and his brother scott and they ran a set of bars where i ran events uh for them and that was more of a family environment where it wasn't as it was more about a feeling and a touch and a vibe because that's what Randy and Scott were about as founders of that business. So I got to see two incredible extremes, right? I got to see super family, super vibe, super experience, and then super, this is the revenue. These are the ops. These are the, these are the, these are the systems in place. And it was the best education for me any that I can possibly have. So in 2004, I opened up a place called Level V, and um, I was the manager, I was the head of promotions, I was the head of marketing, I was everything. And and Steve, to his credit, allowed me to step outside of his corporate structure. So he had about, I don't know, call it 100 corporate employees, but he let me operate independently. And I was the only person his entire company who was able to do his own PR, was able to do his own events, was able to hire, fire, and discipline as, as I chose. And it was a massive success. It was in a neighborhood called the Meatpacking District that was just coming up. It was literally just beginning. Um, it was a basement and it did really well. And a lot of people had come and one gentleman had convinced me to maybe move to Las Vegas and run some nightclubs for him. Another gentleman flew me to Miami to potentially operate a bunch of clubs for him in Miami. And then uh, this gentleman who owns a restaurant company called STK. Uh, walked in and said, Hey, I'm opening up a restaurant called SDK and we have a nightclub below it. And I, and the place I was, was a basement below, below a restaurant. And he's like, I love what you do here. Let's do it together. And that's when I called Mark, who was working across the street for me. I said, Hey, there's this guy. He wants us to open a club. I think we could get some equity. I think we can make a few more dollars and it could be ours. We can own it. We can, we can, 
we can play the music that we want, hire the staff that we want and do it our way. And, and that's what we did. And, you know, we raised, we, we had about 50% of the business and SDK had 50% of the business. We raised $800,000. Um, how did we do it? What did we know about it? We asked three people. They said, this is how you do it. We, we, we called a bunch of people. The economy couldn't be any hotter at the time. It was 2006. Everyone was incredibly wealthy and we were able to raise $800,000 in probably a week. Um, Based on, based on the success of Mark's success as an operator of the clubs he was working at, my success of the clubs I was working at. And I always knew our, a lot of our friends were promoters. And the promoters were making about $150,000 a year. They were probably working three nights a week. And when I say working, they were showing up at 9 o'clock, getting their drink tickets, doing their thing. And I never understood that. And I always wanted to take the route of learning the structure. So I was making $65,000 a year, generating a ton of money. Um, but I always knew if I thought, I don't even know why I thought it wasn't from the book, right? I just, it just felt right, right? It wasn't something I learned. It wasn't something my father taught me. It wasn't something that some, some mentor shared with me. It was just kind of like, I knew that if I had the structure of promotions, marketing, operations, strategy, uh, public relations, that I can find my moment to swing big. And it wasn't about 60 to 80 to a hundred because those guys that were making a buck 50, the next year they were making a buck 25 and the following year they were making a buck and then they had to get out of the business. So, but what was uh, the, what was the overall vision of 10 June? Like, was it like, did you see something missing in the market that you wanted to build with it? Or was it that you and you know, your sort of co-founders wanted to just like have your own place. And that was the primary reason. We thought, and I believed that there was a lack of hospitality in nightlife. We thought that people could be nicer at a nightclub. We thought that our friends weren't necessarily treated the best when we went to other places because whoever was running other places had a different point of view on their version of nightlife hospitality. And we thought we can do it differently. We had a different point of view on how music should be played. We had a different point of view on how we would fill the room. We had a different point of view on how we would style the room. And myself, Mark, and two other guys that were dear friends of ours just got together. They were, they were, they were the managers and we all just did it as a family. So we were different than what was going on in the nightlife business at that time. At that time, there was a couple big groups and they were in it for a long time. And they certainly were not interested in passing the baton or being kind to young people. So when we would go to their places, they weren't, they weren't particularly hospitable for a hospitality organization. So it was just as simple as that. We wanted to do it our way. And we thought there was a market for people our own age and we wanted to host our friends. And it was, it it actually couldn't be any simpler than that. There was no big five-year plan. I didn't know what that was. There was no EBITDA. We didn't know what that was. We didn't know multiples. We didn't know we didn't know scale. We didn't know brand. We didn't know we didn't know any of that. We just knew that we can do a little better. And I knew that I was living in a studio apartment and it was two thousand a month. And that if I took this gig, that I could probably move to the one bed, one floor up, which was three grand a month. And that was success to me. And that was a, a big reason why I wanted to do it. It was really just as simple as those few things. 
So, Eugene, it sounds like, you know, you're now a more confident adult at this point and you've had a few wins, right? Mm. Or at least what are considered wins in your mind, uh, in your profession. Um, you know, what happens after this whole SDK deal? You know, obviously, you guys start growing, I assume. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about those days and that journey. Yeah, so 10 June opened, and it, it, depending on who you ask, we would say it's probably one of the hottest clubs in New York. And if you think New York is one of the most powerful cities in the world, then you can you can call it whatever you want. But we were incredibly successful and successful on, on multiple fronts, right? We were financially successful. We did really well. We paid back our investors really well in, in about eight months where we thought it was going to be two to three years, right? It was wow. successful when it came to our brand because we, you know, every night was really awesome people, big name celebrities, big name events, just really everything across all areas from sports to music, to fashion, to entertainment. And we were fresh and we were different and we were young and we were in it. And as you said, we were genuine, we were authentic and we were there every single night and it was not work. It was not a sacrifice, which it's funny. A lot of people after they do something and say, Oh, it was such a sacrifice for me. No, it wasn't. It was exactly what I wanted to do. It was exactly where I wanted to be. And we had a great experience. So what we learned from that experience at 10 June, which was that we, we had partners upstairs who ran a restaurant and we watched them run the restaurant and we looked at each other and we said, we could run a restaurant. And that was it. So the confidence really just step by step. I watched guys run nightclubs and Mark and I looked at people who ran nightclubs and we said, we could do that. So we did it. And then we checked the box on the nightclub stuff and we did it better than anyone would have thought we had done. So then we said, we could run restaurants. So we did it. So two blocks over in 2009, we opened a place called Abe and Arthur's NSL. And we didn't open a 60 seat restaurant. We went and opened a 300 seat restaurant as our first restaurant. Again. Oh, wow. Okay, so some would call that arrogance, some would call that confidence, some would call that naiveness. It might have been a mixture of all three, but our point of view, which actually is pretty consistent with our point of view today, is it's just as hard to open a 60-seat restaurant as it is to open a 300-seat restaurant. So if you're going to spend the time and you're going to spend the effort, if you're going to believe in what you're doing, then you're going to believe that you can pack them in. And 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 we have this view, like, there's some people go who home. Yeah, it's Sundance film movies versus Avatar. And we like to make commercial hits. And that's who we are. So the people who like to do these niche little projects and do the things that they do, that's that's fantastic. And that might be who they are, but that's not interesting to us. We want to make big, big moves and big, big splashes. So in 2009, we bought a club called Lotus, which was the hottest club in New York for a decade before we had bought it. Honestly, when I moved to New York and I had my New York magazine, it said, that's where you should go. So I looked at my roommate and said, that's where we're going to go. And we put on our button down shirts from Banana Republic and walked ourselves over there and got denied probably 30 different times when we first moved to New York to get into that place. But, um, you know, so that was our first um, introduction to the restaurant business. From there, we had went and opened what is now known as Catch. Um, and that was in 2011. That was so still in New York. Yep. 2006, 10 June, 2009, Abe and Arthur's in SL, 2011, catch all within three blocks. So this is really 
a really unique experience because we have a we have a we have a venue on every single block, and both Mark and I lived in the neighborhood. So life life was fun. It, it felt like a neighborhood. It felt like a movie, and we and we were having a great time. At the same time, we opened up a restaurant on Forty Eighth and Lex called Lexington Brass, um, and then we went on an opening spree. So catch again, incredibly successful out of the gate, great sales, food even better than Abe and Arthur's. We knew we needed to lean in a little bit more into the food product as the nightlife product, because there's nothing proprietary about nightlife. You understand like a bottle of Grey Goose, a bottle of 1942, you can have it. I can have it. You can, you can play the Tiesto Calvin Harris song and the Drake track. And so can I, the only thing proprietary, it's the software. It's not the hardware. It's something in the air. It's the fairy dust that you can create. So that is hard to maintain in a city like New York. But what we learned and what we realized is that food harder in the beginning, but when you get it right, it's sustainable because it's bigger than you. What made Catch's food and the menu right? I mean, what were people saying about it? Why did it work? We, we invested in it. So Abe and Arthur's, we kind of did bootstrap. Right. We had our chef started maybe a month before we opened. We didn't have time to do a lot of R&D. Catch, on the other hand, was a marriage of two of our favorite restaurants. So it was Nobu, which we loved and was such an aspirational place to us. The first time we ever spent a hundred bucks on dinner was at Nobu. The first time we saw Celebrity X was at Nobu. The first time we went with a CEO of a company and he ordered without looking at the menu. It was, it was, it was, it was magical to us. It's, it was a magical place. So there was the Asian that we loved. And then the other restaurant, which was my, my old boss's restaurant was, a, was a blue called blue water grill. And it was a seafood restaurant, but it was, it was a little bit more modern. So we thought if, if seafood hasn't been made sexy yet, fun, modern, that if we can infuse some of our favorite aspects and Asian elements of Nobu and, and particularly sushi, which was just something we loved, but in a seafood environment, that, that that was a white space in New York. And when you find a white space in New York City, that's rare um, and you really want to lean into it. So that's what happened. We had an amazing chef in Hong Quinn um, who had one top chef, the original one, and, and he was so talented and really understood our vision. And we worked together with the rest of the team at the time. There was, there was a group of six or eight of us that really were part of all the, all the tastings and, and the group that, that made that place happen, and it popped. So that was Catch, and that place is still open today, the anchor of our company, the name of our business, and um, the foundation of everything that we have built from there. Yeah, you mentioned like how you want me to keep going or or I could just, yeah, go ahead. 2013. Then we open, I don't remember the exact um, timeline, but we opened catch in Miami. We also opened the general, which was a 21,000 square foot Asian restaurant downtown. Uh, We also opened in the rebel casino, $2.1 billion casino. We we did a partnership with Hakkasan group to open a mega nightclub, beach club and, and bar. Um, and we also opened in 2008 in the W in Hoboken, the chandelier room, which was a, uh, a rooftop. So 
So that's, I, I, I think the time got a little messed up there, but at one point it was 10 June on Little West 12th, Abe and Arthur's in SL on 14th, Catch on 13th, The General on 199 Bowery, Lex, Lexington Brass on 48th and Lex, Miami and Atlantic City. It and sounds we, like, you know, you kind of, you know, like building towards this, a lot of things just happened all at once or just like very, you know, very close to each other, like, you know, a few years apart. You know, you start with one bar, but now you have multiple restaurants and multiple bars and just like all these different venues and locations. Did it come easy to you to be able to manage all these projects all together? Or does it kind of go back to what you were saying before of like, you just did a really effective job of, you know, sharing the vision with the right amount of people who then went and did, did their thing and made it, made it help make it successful. I'll answer. It was easy to open them, but it was even <laughs> easier to close them. So <laughs> yes, at, at the time, this is, this is the challenge with success. Success. You believe that success breeds success. So you could continue to be successful by doing the same thing over and over again. And the reality is that the, that the authentic, tiny touches that we put into every single space, our time wasn't available to do that when you spread it around. And then when you don't learn how to manage other people or put people in a position to execute, instead you hire really just close friends and people that have been with you because you think you're an entourage episode, um, it gets it gets hard. So the answer is it was easy to open them because we had success and cash flow and everything we touched popped but it was incredibly difficult to maintain. And in 2013, 2014, 14, 15, we hit the tipping point. So in 2015, we went from 13 places back to two. Mm. Yeah. So, and, and it's important because a lot of people, and I listen to a ton of podcasts and I listen to a ton of people who give their version of the history books of themselves and they don't share the multiple failures. Now, some will throw one in there because you gotta, you gotta say you failed at something, right? But I mean, the reality <laughs> is, and this I think is important. You can fail a lot as long as you could get knocked down a lot as long as you don't get knocked out. And if you right. have a success and that success is big enough, it will wash out the failures. But success is a motherfucker because. You believe your own stuff, you believe who you are, and you start to take for granted how you got there. And the essence of what got us there was two nice guys who wanted to open up a place to invite our friends and have a good time and create a great experience. And when we started getting into a different place, that got lost and we needed to find our North star and there would be no book and no mentor that would tell us anything because we were winning, but we made every single mistake that every single operator has made. And if you read every single book now of any single person who's been successful, everyone's gone through their version of this. Um, but we needed to go through it on our own. And in 2015, we repositioned the business. We ended up selling the Bowery. We ended up closing Abe and Arthur's. We ended up closing Miami, uh, and the Revel Casino ended up closing the casino. We were actually doing fantastic, but the casino went bankrupt. A $2.2 billion casino went bankrupt. So here we are with Catch and Lexington Brass and what felt like a terrible 
terrible experience. But I don't believe in terrible things. I don't believe that anything is negative. I just don't think you understand what the positive is while it's happening. And at that time, I felt pretty terrible. But it also reset all of us. Mm -hmm. And what Eugene, we did were... sorry, go for it. What no, were you doing? It. What were you doing? You know, this is ten plus years, almost fifteen years now. But you know, along the way, what were you doing? Anything else? I mean, like, because it sounds like between everything that was going on, everything that was in the works, there wasn't a lot of time for anything else. So I'm curious, you know, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs are always, you know, talking about how they're burnt out, etc. What was it like for you? I know you said you were having fun, and this is what you should have been doing, but there's only 24 hours in a day. Yeah, I, I, well. I wasn't managing my time properly and I wasn't giving the respect to the people that made the business run. And those were the, the employees of the company. I had a mentality that it was, I'm making you money. So you better do what I say and take care of the guest as opposed to, I really need to treat you as employees really well. And I need to spend time with you and inspire you so that you can take care of the guest. And I did nothing else but work, but I didn't think of it entirely as work. It was also fun, almost to the point where it was more fun than work, where I started to get to the restaurant later, get to the office later, hang out later, and not be there earlier overseeing the business side of it. So we as a company didn't take that hard time out. But yes, we dedicated every minute to it. So no, there weren't many Sunday birthday parties or there would, there would be a Saturday night and someone was like, I mean, I missed weddings. I missed weddings of close friends because so-and-so was going to be there that night and I had to be there. And I couldn't miss a Saturday night because- Do you regret that though? Do you regret those moments? I, looking back on it, I would have definitely wished I had the perspective that I had today, but regret's a strong word. I, I needed yeah. to go through that and I needed to feel that um, in order to appreciate it today. So right. um, It's hard I'm to say like, if you would be in the same position had you had that mindset back then, right? Like You just never know. I, I think the calm, I'm, I'm happy where I am today. I'm happy the person I am that I am today, and I'm unsure that this could have been the, the result without that entire process exactly the way it was. So I think I needed to go through all those wins and then all those losses. And I think I also needed to get that reality check um, in order to develop myself as an individual. And it probably wasn't, it probably wasn't ready for me. Like someone once said, sometimes you got to leave things in the oven. They're not, it's not cooked yet. Let it rise, leave it. So hmm. You know, by, by 34, I'm 42 now, by 34, it was pretty clear that, you know, we had to make a lot of life changes and business changes. And that began the reset of the awesome company that we have today. But I, I think it was around that time. Yeah. And I think it was around that time, if I'm, if I'm remember correctly, uh, when you sort of start another venture, uh, which is Rumble. Uh, yeah. Rumble boxing. So, talk to us about how that whole thing came about. Um, sure. And, so, yeah. So during during the reset, right? We we had we had we had dropped down to catch catch roof and Lexington Brass, um, and we were preparing to open catch in Los Angeles. 
So we had now pivoted from a nightlife group that did a little bit of restaurants to an, a full restaurant company that then had some nightlife. And LA was taking a lot longer than we had thought to open because of construction delays. It, it was a very um, tricky project because it was a rooftop and a building and, and, and it, it was definitely taking a minute. And at that point is when I realized I no longer enjoyed being in a nightclub. I no longer enjoyed drinking. I no longer enjoyed necessarily what it stood for to be out every single night and bring people and host people. So I had. You're like, I want to do the total opposite of that and <laughs> go, well, go towards exercise. <laughs> no, I actually wanted to do everything exactly the same except pivot the drinking to the fitness because everything else is exactly the same, right? right. It's still beautiful music. people. It's yeah. still great music. It's still fashion. It's still design. It's still, it's still putting a whole bunch of people into a tight space to create an experience. Um, right. And we traded out the, the high of the booze for the high of the endorphins. Um, and that was, that was awesome. But it, it, it gave me an opportunity to, you, I, I, I love music, right? So, and I, and I love bands and you always want, like sometimes a band member needs to do a solo album to get back to the band and, and right. get, get their own per personal touches out. So for me, that, that was an opportunity to, to, to show a little bit of a different side of me. And I really was enjoying fitness at the time. And again, finding a blank space in New York City, which was boutique boxing, the fact that it didn't exist was just, was just mind blowing to me. So I had the time, I had um, the want, and I want, and I had this urge. So, so that's, that's kind of how it started. I, I met um, my business partners in there and it was interesting because it was also the first time I wasn't, ha I wouldn't have to be the operator. Right. Um, we, we had always been the operator of the business. And in this scenario, I got to be the creative, which was pretty awesome to me. So it was, uh, it wouldn't take away from the focus of the restaurant, but it was an opportunity to show a creative side of me, which is something you know, going back to childhood, no one ever would have told you that like loving sports and loving music and loving social can get you paid. So I never leaned into creativity or design because I just felt like, well, that's just an expense. That's not. Doesn't possible. it fucking suck? Like to, ha to know that, like after, after the fact, like, you know, like why, like you just kind of blame so many things or you could point so many fingers as to teachers or parents or just people around you that didn't, I, at least like let you have that space or, or, you know, put other pressures on you or just society in general. Right. It, it, it sucks. I mean, like, but it's good to like, at least be in tune with that at any point in your life. So the fact that you can even think that way now is honestly a great thing. Um, I, I think it was exact. I had to be that way. I had to not know it to really appreciate it. Let, 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 let me go one step further. I had to thirst for those air Jordans so hard when I was 12, 13 years old that I couldn't get them for me to understand what someone thirsts for. Yeah. I aspired to every aspect of, of whatever this game is. Meaning, I got to New York, I couldn't get into the club. Okay, I wanted to get into the club. I get into the club. Then you want to get to a VIP area. You couldn't get into a VIP area. Then you learn how to get into the VIP area. Then you learn how to get a comp drink. Then you learn how to get a comp bottle. Then you learn, you kind of take every step of the way. But if you just got into the club with your buddy at 17 years old, because you, your dad knew the person and you're immediately in the VIP, you lose 
how to connect to the customer. And I'm so grateful that I had to go through every one of those layers because that's the only advantage that you have as a Russian immigrant who doesn't have the, the means and the funds because it's the only thing you have. Like, I don't need to be taught what marketing is of, of, of cool things that people want because I wanted all of them. Mm. And I knew how I felt when I got it one day and I knew how I felt when I couldn't get it. And I know what every commercial felt like because they were talking to me, literally. Eugene, early on, you talked about how, you know, back when you started, there were no podcasts, there were no uh, stories, perhaps, of entrepreneurship and founders and their failures and their successes and their strategies, etc. But let's say, you know, we take it back 20, 25 years, right? Eugene Rem is cloned. There is now an 18-year-old version of you about to head into college. Yeah. What would you do differently in 2021, knowing about entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship and business and marketing and fundraising, what would you do that now that you didn't do then that could serve perhaps as good advice uh, for future entrepreneurs who do have access nowadays to the content that's out there, to the mentors that have gone through this, to, through, through invest? I mean, just there's so much now that folks didn't have 20, 25 years ago. So I'm curious about yeah. your, your answer there. Hmm. That's a, that's an awesome question. I very rarely can't answer it something right away. So give me 10 seconds. I want to think through it, but I think, um, I think I would say less time hanging out, more time being curious, less time doing nothing. And stepping outside of my college bubble and seeing what else was out there. You know, on the other hand, it's hard for me to say that because if I didn't go through it exactly the way I went through it, I may not end up where I am today and I couldn't be happier where I ended up today. But if I was 18 years old today in 2021, and there's an eight, you know, that's honestly 95% of the reasons why I do these podcasts is because I, I try to talk to an 18 year old version of myself because I would have loved to have heard this conversation in a very honest way so that I could, so I could, I, I could learn from that. But I, I think the 18 year old today would always be learning, always be questioning, always be curious. Why, 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 how did you do that? Everyone, first question everyone asks when they meet someone is what do you do? But they don't ask the next question. How'd you do it? So anytime I met someone, I always wanted to know, how do you do it? So today, you can find out how anybody did it. So you should go do that. You should also have opinion on anything. And in the past, your financials would stop you from having an opinion on certain things because you couldn't buy 500 albums. So you couldn't have a concept on music. You couldn't buy all the dope clothes because you, you couldn't even walk into the Ralph Lauren store. But now you could go online and see what everything is and how everything is done. So the internet has created an opportunity to, to even the playing field that financials used to have. So you right. should go learn everything. If you want to get into the film business, have an opinion on every single film that is ever made. Watch it, but don't just watch it as a customer. That's the other thing, right? I never just went to a bar to hang out at a bar. I was always curious what the bartender was doing, 
always curious what the DJ was doing, always curious how the business of it worked. So to mindlessly go through a day is just a miss. So today you should be asking, what did you do? How did you do it? And constantly be learning. And that it would be just, I mean, like, look, until, until COVID, you could fly anywhere for a couple hundred dollars. You can go do anything. You could go see something. You can have direct access. You could DM lots of people that will get back to you. But this, like, for example, this conversation is almost as honest as any conversation that I've had with any executive or any close friend about my career. And if you can get that 500 times over, then get it. So if you, for example, if you want to get into the restaurant business, then go to every single restaurant. You, oh, you can't afford the restaurant? Okay, then go work in the business where part of your job is to get there. How do you get there? I don't care. Be nice to the, the chef that needs to go to tastings and find a way to hold his briefcase or take notes for him so that you can join the meal and find an opportunity to get in the game. That is something- And if you can't, and if you can't even do that, then one step further, launch your podcast and literally start inter- interviewing restaurant professionals from the <laughs> chef to the dishwasher, to the owner, to the investor. Seriously, I guarantee if somebody did that. If somebody really badly wanted an open a restaurant business, had no money, no experience, and they did that for a year, I guarantee you that after a year of them interviewing a bunch of people in the industry, hospitality industry in general, that there will be one, if not two, if not five people that support that person into their dreams coming true. I guarantee it because of the fact that they know those people. They've, they've learned through their experiences. Posh, and I'll give you a better one. If you can't after a year, then you know that's not what you should be doing for a living. Exactly. Yep. Right, there's a part else. of this. St- there's a part of this that should come natural. Like if, if, if you're like forcing yourself to do it, then you should, you should ask yourself like, is this even what I want? Like, are the, like, I, I feel like when it, when it, when you stumble across something, there's this natural feeling of curiosity that you should hone in on and you should go after that, even though it might not seem like the perfect thing, or it might not seem like there's a lucrative future there. Like go into it and dive into it and give it its due time. And you never know. Cause you know, Right for for whatever reason, you just could be the perfect person for that thing, and no one else has come along, and you know. So there's that too. But have an EQ, right? Because you have to remember something. I don't care how many hours I would have put in at 15 years old in the gym or on the basketball court. I'm five six and a half, and I was never ever making the team. So I always Muggsy Bugs did it. So never say never. Yes, but I am not him. But uh, and Muggsy, Bo- and Muggsy Bogues was dope. But but yes, I, I am not him. But I would think about where do you stand out? Where do you have an advantage versus other people? So I know that having great grades did not matter in the restaurant and nightlife industry, where that does not that would not be held against me. My inability to look at a piece of paper, look at the information on it put it in my brain and regurgitate it to the person next to me, I am not at a disadvantage from my lack of ability to do that. I am at a massive advantage because I am social, because I'm outgoing, because I'm likable, because I'm curious, because I genuinely care about other people. So I right there, just if you stopped right there, I am better than 90% of all the people in the hospitality industry. Because those, those things that God gave me, that the world gave me, that my parents gave me, puts me at a massive advantage. So why lean into something where you're at a massive disadvantage from the beginning when you can lean into something where you are where you have a massive 
advantage. And that's, that would be something, I mean, if you want to talk about something I would tell to a young person is like, yeah, I get it. Everybody has a dream, but make sure your dream has a little bit of reality behind it. Right? Like, I think there's a lot of people who, who would th- think they wanted to be actors, but I'm acting every day. I'm motivating and inspiring on days. I'm sometimes not feeling so great. I'm, I'm genuinely pushing something out there that not always is at a hundred percent, but I'm using it in an industry that works for me. But if I were ever to be in, for example, an actor where my entire success and career would be dependent on some other person's view of my actions, no way. I, I, I couldn't get behind that. I needed to be in, in control. And the more control you can have in a situation, the better you're going to be at the result of it. Right. That's the problem with like art, right? What's it? Are you good at it? Are you bad at it? Who knows? Whatever someone else tells you, right? Nope. And I think that that that's a that's a challenge for me. And I always enjoyed business because business puts some numbers behind it. And the numbers, I'm not driven necessarily by money, but I do think it's a really fun way to keep score. Because mm. when you're playing your friend in basketball, if you don't keep score, the game's not as fun. Period. Right. Unless you're the loser and you're just trying to, you know, just trying to then, get some time in with your buddy. <laughs> then it's then it's a hobby and no longer a business. And, that's <laughs> yeah. a big, and that is a big difference. And people should know that as well. There's yeah. hobbies and there are and there are careers. And I have certain things that I love to do as hobbies. And I've actually found a way to put them into my career, such right. as music, which I absolutely love. I can never be in the music business. I can never. I have friends who manage talent. I, I I couldn't do it, but I understand music. So I found my creative outlet by creating the playlist for all the restaurants or creating the playlist for all the, for all the gyms and what, what songs the trainers can play. That's my version of creativity, but it comes from a, it comes from a place of capitalism because I am genuinely enjoy being a capitalist. Right. I feel like this is one of those conversations where we could literally go on for hours and it'll be amazing. Um, but unfortunately, you know, I know you got some stuff to do and, and hopefully we could do this again someday and just, or meet in person, uh, yeah. sometime soon once, once this whole COVID thing is, uh, is over and done with for good. Um, but yeah, man, I can't thank you enough for being here and sharing your story with us and all the best to you and your, your businesses. And we can't wait to see, I mean, you're still such a young guy. So like, there's so much more to do and, you know, we can't wait to see, uh, what comes next for you. But we're excited and um, also congratulations to you guys. I mean, the, what you've done in such a short time and, and the guests that you've been able to get, it, it's, a, it's a credit to the authentic authenticity of, of your podcast because I'm sure a lot of people have tried, but to be able to get to the people that you've gotten to in, in, a, in an honest way, it's just, it's, it's, it's special. So good luck to you guys and keep doing good stuff. Thank Thanks, you, man. All right, later.